We're going to be in Numbers chapter 8 tonight, and while we're turning there, I just have a small announcement I should have made this morning, but there's a sign-up sheet on a lectern in the foyer, and that's for our Reformation Day service, which obviously will happen on October 31st. We commemorate the Protestant Reformation. There's a sign-up sheet there. I think we're having a catered meal and I'll have a, it, it's not a sermon, it, maybe 15 or 20 minute talk after the meal. And then we'll have a time of um, hymn singing. It's, 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 a, it's, um, it's a very a pleasant time. The, I think the, the subject that I'm going to take dealing with the benefits that we have from the Protestant Reformation is um, the Bible, giving the Bible back to the laity, as it were. And then in particular, um, my interest is in um, taking the Bible from the Latin and putting it into the common or the vulgar languages, English, um, for, in our instance, which is a benefit of the Protestant Reformation. Okay, Numbers chapter 8, not a, ver- a very lengthy, okay, 26 passage, verses. Uh, verse 1, hear God's word. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, when you mount the lamps, the seven lamps that will give light in the front of the lampstand, Aaron did therefore did so. He mounted its lamps at the front of the lampstand, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold, from its base to its flowers, it's, it was hammered work, according to the pattern which the Lord had showed Moses, so that he made the lampstand. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the sons of Israel and cleanse them. Thus she shall do for them, for their cleansing. Sprinkle purifying water on them. Let them use a razor over their whole body and wash their clothes, and they will be clean. Then let them take a bull where it's grain offering and fine flour mixed with oil, and a second bull that you shall take for a sin offering. So you shall present the Levites before the tended meeting. You shall also assemble the whole congregation of the sons of Israel and present the Levites before the Lord, and the sons of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. Aaron then shall present the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the sons of Israel that they may qualify to perform the service of the Lord. Now the Levites shall lay their hands on the head of the bulls and offer the one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. You shall have the Levites stand before Aaron, before his son, so as to present them as a wave offering to the Lord. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the sons of Israel. The Levites shall be mine. Then after that, the Levites may go in to serve the tent of meeting, but you shall cleanse them and present them as a wave offering, for they are wholly given to me from among the sons of Israel. I have taken them for myself instead of every first issue of the womb, the firstborn of all the sons of Israel. For every firstborn among the sons of Israel is mine, among the men and among the animals. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them for myself. I have taken the Levites instead of every firstborn among the sons of Israel. I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron, to his sons, from among the sons of Israel, to perform the service of the sons of Israel in the tent of meeting, and to make atonement on behalf of the sons of Israel, so that there will be no plague among the sons of Israel by their coming near to the sanctuary." Thus did Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the sons of Israel to the Levites, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so the sons of Israel did to them. 
The Levites, too, purified themselves from sin and washed their clothes, and Aaron presented them as a wave offering to the Lord. Aaron also made atonement for them to cleanse them. Then after that, the Levites went in to perform their service in the tent of meeting before Aaron, before his sons, just as the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites. So they did to them. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is what applies to the Levites from 25 years old and upward. They shall enter to perform service in the work of the tent of meeting. But at the age of 50 years, they shall retire from service in the work and not work any more. They may, however, assist their brothers in the tent of meeting to keep an obligation, but they themselves should do no work. Thus you shall deal with the Levites concerning their obligations. God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the day in which we could separate ourselves from other things, even lawful things, Lord, necessary things, and to gather together as your church, as those who are called out from sin and gathered to, um, to you, Jesus Christ, and as our head and to one another as your blessed divine body, and to worship you corporately as we will be doing uh, throughout the eternal estate, worshiping you. What a glorious thought. Help us, Lord, at the end of the day, you know our bodies, we're, uh, we're made of dust, we're clay, and we're prone to wandering minds and um, tired hearts. Help us, help me, O oh God, that we could finish the day with, um, with sincere and fervent worship, that you would be glorified and we would be edified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What this, what this book, what this particular chapter is talking about, and my intention is generally to take, uh, generally to look at each chapter into um, to boil it down to its main doctrine, so that in the book of Numbers, I'm looking only primarily to get one sermon per chapter, and for I have a couple of reasons for that, um, pastoral and theologically theological reasons, but it doesn't always work that way. But this particular chapter, what we're dealing with is the consecration or the dedication of the servants of the sanctuary, the Levites. You remember we've said before, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. So the 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 family, uh, the Le- Levitical family descending from Aaron, they make up the priests. The rest of the Levitical families obviously descending from Levi, I think, what boy was he? Third boy? I forget which boy. Um, uh, descending from him, they make up the, the servant helpers to the priests. And so we're looking at the consecration of the Levites, the, sermon, the servant helpers to Aaron and his sons. But it's the consecration. It's, it's, if you're a military man and you've ever seen a commissioning, I've seen plenty of Marines and Navy, my son, Army, with the commissioning, this is a, essentially the commissioning of these Levites. You are uh, uh, you're you're calling them, you're commissioning them, and you're equipping them for the service to which they're called. So this is getting them ready to work in the particular uh, realm of their work, which is the sanctuary, or the tent of meeting, or the tabernacle. All those things are the same um, entity. Now let me put the consecration of these Levitical uh, helpers in um, context with what we began to look at last week in chapter 7. It was actually the dedication or the consecration of the edifice in which they'll work. 
So we looked at the uh, consecration, which means separation, a dedication from common use to holy use uh, unto God of the tabernacle. And we've said before, the earthly tabernacle was um, 15 feet uh, wide, 45 feet long, uh, uh, 15 feet high. And uh, it was divided, I think the Holy of Holies was maybe nine feet of that was the Holy of Holies. So it was a rectangle, but it was a divided rectangle by, by the, the veil. And, um, and, and that, is, that was being consecrated in chapter 7. And the other thing that we saw separated or consecrated from uh, common use to, to holy use was one of the main uh, pieces of equipment or furniture within the sanctuary, which is the altar. And uh, what do you do on altars? You make sacrifices. And what is the principal truth taught by an altar? Without the, wage, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So we've mentioned this before. To understand really what's going on in the book of Numbers, uh, a lot of what we see in Numbers, uh, we, we also see repeated for us in the book of Leviticus. Now, if you've ever read the book of Leviticus and you don't know your New Testament, you're going to be super confused. So if it were me, and I didn't know the book of Leviticus, and I wanted to know the book of Leviticus, I would study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, understand the gospel, the presentation of Christ, Romans, the fifth gospel, as it were, and then Hebrews. And um, I, and I, I would look at Leviticus, and I would look at Numbers through that. And then you, oh, Christ is the high priest. Christ is the tabernacle. Christ is the day of atonement. Christ is the Passover. Christ fulfills all these things that these Levites are typological uh, of, and then you would get a better handle on it. So you have the separation of the workers in the sanctuary, and you have the, sec- the, the sanctification or the separation, consecration of the actual sanctuary. Um, the altar is so significant because, and the temple, the tabernacle is significant because it's the place in which God places his holy name. It's the place where his most intimate presence is. It's almost along the lines of the Emmanuel principle. And Emmanuel, Emmanuel means what? God with us. That's God with his people. That's what the tent teaches. Everywhere the people of God go, the Levites were told to, to break down the tent, to pack it up, and to carry it. And then the Shekinah glory went before the people of God. And the Shekinah glory was not only the front guard, but the rear guard. And it was uh, smoke by day, pillar of smoke by day, and a pillar of fire by night. Wherever, wherever the pillar stopped, then the people of God set uh, down their camp, and then the pillar stood still. God was present, both in the fire and then particularly in this uh, edifice of uh, this tabernacle, and especially, especially, especially when we consider the business of an altar. That's where God will be with his people in a, in a friendly way, in a reconciled way, teaching us that without the satisfaction of God's justice for man's sin, God can't dwell with his people, but he makes provision for the satisfaction of his people that he could dwell with us. Well, that's what's going on. So you have the edifice itself being separated for holy use. Now you have the workers within this particular edifice. They're being sanctified, separated for um, holy use, holy uh, work. Now, um, what we have here in chapter 8, beyond that, as we kind of pick apart that larger idea of being um, separated, you have God's very detailed instruction 
of how he wants the tabernacle to be established, how he wants it to be used, and then the division of labor of the particular workers within it. And so I just kind of want to walk through it in a chronological fashion. I won't get to all the various subpoints of this passage. There are maybe, I don't know what I had, six, seven, maybe even eight subdivisions within this particular chapter. Maybe I'll hit the top three or four most salient points. But the first thing I want us to consider is the lighting. So before we get to the consecration of the actual workers, we're going to get to the the business of the lighting within the tabernacle. And what we have is uh, lamps, uh, seven lamps, and then you have uh, lamp stands. Now, in the land of my birth, New England, there was a large percentage of my neighbors that were Jewish folks, and they would have a menorah in the window window, um, during Hanukkah. Uh, the the Hebrew word for lampstand is menorah. So every time you're looking at that word English, lampstand, it's menorah. And so this is the the establishment of setting up a menorah inside of the tabernacle and then later uh, temporary but but not movable edifice of the temple, which serves the same uh, purpose. So let's say a few things about first the physical significance of the lamps and the lampstands, and then maybe touch on some of the spiritual significance of what these things represent. I mentioned that the tabernacle is not really a very fancy edifice at all. It's just a tent. It has some very intricate things inside of the tent, but if you were to look outside of the tent, the tent structure itself, you have various pole structures, and obviously tethers and so on, but primarily it's... um, it, it is made of four layers of some kind of material. It's the, the 15, 45, 15 feet high, and it has four layers to it, so it's not open to the sky. It actually has a covering from the whole covering all the way down the sides, and the coverings are variously denoted in the Bible. The first covering on the inside uh, cover is linen, and then over that is goatskin. And then over that, the third layer is a ram skin dyed red. And then depending upon the translation of your Bible, the outside uh, final fourth covering is either sea cow or manatee uh, skin or badger skin. Um, so, so you have, I'm not wrestling over exact, exactly, is it a sea cow, manatee, or is it a badger? Um, I, I want you to get the picture. We have a a tent with four layers of covering over that. Now, remember where we are just historically. We're in the wilderness. This is not in the the northern part of the world. This is not in Antarctica, anything like that. It's no place cold. We're in the desert. If I took you, let's say just our summers, if I were to put you in a 14 a 15 by 45 by 15 foot tent and cover it with four layers and stick you outside on an August, what would the inside of that tent be like? Sometimes we think, oh boy, wouldn't it be so, boy, it must have been so neat to be inside of there. Put yourself inside of that tent. You're in a desert. To say that it was hot would have been an understatement and now you have no natural light. And the only kind of light you have are these various lamps and lamp stands. When we have hurricanes, which is usually every other week, you know, we, it's, we go 10 years and without anything, praise the Lord, and then they're every other week, and then our lights go out. I like to read. Try reading by candlelight. Uh, 
maybe if I was 15, but certainly when I hit my 50s, I can't see anything. Um, without any kind of lighting, you couldn't have seen your face, your hand in front of your face in this box. So uh, one, the very basic thing that the light does is it provides light for these particular workers to do the work in the sanctuary. That's obvious. So that's what these lamps and these lampstands serve naturally. But if you know the book of Revelation and the book of Hebrews, you'll know that there is spiritual significance to both the idea of a lamp being in the holy tabernacle or, or temple or a lampstand. Jesus, the Bible tells us, walks among the lampstands of his church. And so um, we could wonder, and I did wonder, why would God, if he wanted this rectangular tent of meeting, why not just leave it open to the sky that the natural light and even moonlight or starlight would provide the the light necessary uh, for the workers? I can't be entirely dogmatic as to why God would not want natural light to provide the lighting. I can get close, though. All of these lights in the lampstands are finding their ultimate fulfillment in God with his people, in Christ, who is God with his people. In other words, Christ is the light. When you come to the temple, uh, the tabernacle, even the eternal estate, there's going to be no more night there because God in Christ is the light of the eternal estate. So this particular place, God simply is teaching his people that this is not a natural place, as it were. This is a place that teaches supernatural things. When we talk about God with his people or God's restoration with his people or God being atoned or appeased uh, by our, uh, for our sins by these various typological people, this is a supernatural thing. We don't learn it. Unlike, I think, Thomas Aquinas codified some things to the, to the Roman Catholic Church. Classically, Protestants don't believe that looking at nature, you can come to a saving knowledge of God in Christ. They don't believe that. The chapter one, paragraph one of our confession says... We believe that it's not through looking at nature we come to know God in Christ, but it's through looking at Scripture as the Holy Spirit applies the the gospel to us. So God simply doesn't doesn't want us to look to nature for our light, but to teach us that he himself provides for the light. I'm going to read some of the book of Revelation, how it shows the spiritual understanding of these lights and lamps. Revelation 21 the city, the eternal city, which is the new, the new Jerusalem, the glorified church, the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the lamb. That's what's being taught. Its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime, for there will be no night there. And that's the idea in this tabernacle the lamps were burning from morning to evening. There's no night. There's no darkness. That God being with his people is the light of his people. This is, a, this is a John chapter 1. This is a John chapter 14. Our God in Christ is the light of his people. And continuously, he, um, uh, he, he is burning, as it were, night and day. And the eternal estate will be all light. I don't know how that will work, but the Bible says that it's true. So that's the, the, the light of the workers of the sanctuary. And the, the, the next idea that we have, which is a, a larger idea of this chapter, is the purification of the sanctuary laborers. That's what's going on. 
you have these various rituals being performed to and by the Levites, but first to the Levites in order to prepare them for their service so that they would be approved. Because unconsecrated, they themselves would be unapproved, seen by God in their sin, and he wouldn't accept their service. So these, there are various purification rituals. Again, given the way that I understand scripture, these things are types and shadows of that which is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Leviticus, uh, excuse me, Numbers 8, 5. Take the Levites from among you, from Israel, and cleanse them. This is a typological or a ceremonial cleansing. Again, the book of Hebrews tells us the blood of the bulls and goats was typological or ceremonial. It taught by externals the truth that Jesus Christ purchases or rots internally, spiritually. So the bulls and the goats and so on pointed forward to the blood of the lamb. So when these fellows are getting purified externally, it's ceremonial, but it teaches a larger spiritual principle. And there are various ritualistic elements. Verse 7. I think there are three. You have sprinkled purifying purifying, uh, water on them. Then you have using a razor over their whole body, uh, cutting off all of the hair of their body, and then washing their clothes. So three ritualistic elements to prepare the Levites for sanctuary labors. Now, I'm calling the first ritualistic element, and I'm not calling this because I, I, I want to engender any kind of like argument or to be especially polemical. There is a baptizing of the person. Then you have a shaving of the person. Then you have a cleansing of the, the clothes of the person. But I'm, I'm, I'm using the word baptize for a particular reason. So the first thing that occurs in their ritual cleansing is that they must be baptized with water. A counterpart of what's going on with, and I'm just going to mention this and jump back into the baptism. A counterpart of this cleansing ritual for the Levites occurs with the, uh, the lepers. In Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, almost identical. But with a the leper, they're going to be, I think, sprinkled both with water and with blood. And they have their, their hair uh, cut off and their clothes clean, and then their main ceremonial clean. And there are some things that I want to bring out there. But let's just deal with these particular um, workers being cleansed first with the sprinkling, or what I'm calling the baptism of water. And I know this is something which I, I do lament as a Protestant. I wish everything wasn't so debated in the church um, we believe dunking, we believe sprinkling, we believe pouring, we believe this person, everything under the sun. I know the Roman Catholics don't get away with this. They're not a monolith either. They just appear to be a monolith, but they're not. Once you get into their theology, there are various camps. I will say, I've been a Christian since I was, what, 26, minister 22 years. I really wish everything would be unified. I really do. I wish the Bible would say baptize your babies or don't baptize your babies or dunk or don't dunk. I wish, I wish the Bible would make, say it so we would have no divisions. The longer I live, the more cumbersome and vexing the divisions are to me. Um, but nevertheless, I do realize that people do draw hard lines and we get like Hatfields and McCoys. So when I am talking about the baptism, I'm not really... I don't really want to focus on the mode. I will talk about the mode. I want to focus on the idea of purification. That's the larger truth that baptism teaches. Even New Testament water baptism 
It's not the mode per se. It's the purification business. It's the being separated, the being consecrated. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 10. They were baptized into the cloud. They were baptized into the name of Moses. So the idea is not the mode per se, but it's the larger truth of cleansing. Baptism teaches being cleansed, purified, consecrated by the blood of Christ or by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, regeneration. So think purification. If we thought that, I think perhaps maybe there'd be less fights. But Leviticus 14. And I'm going to bring in the counterpart of the the baptism of the uh, leper. The same idea. These Levitical uh, helpers, by nature, they are sinners. And in order to be accepted in their worship, in their work, they have to be cleansed. We're all sinners. Levites are sinners. Aaronical priests are sinners. The leper is the picture of the prototypical sinner. And we need cleansing. And God provides for it. So the leper, 14, Leviticus. The priests shall look at the leper if the infection of leprosy has been healed in the leper, then the priest shall give orders to take two live clean birds and cedar wood and a, a scarlet string and hyssop for the one who is to be cleansed. The priest shall give orders to slay the one bird in an earthen vessel over running water. As for the live bird, he shall take it together with the cedar bird, the scarlet string, the hyssop. Now here is the actual mode of the baptism of the, um, of the leper. And then, like, I take this to be the mode of the baptism of the Levitical helper. Um, Leviticus 14, verse 6b. So you're you killing the living bird, the bird into some kind of basin. He shall dip then the cedar wood and the hyssop, dip them in the live bird in the blood, in the bird that was slain over the running water. He shall then sprinkle seven times the one who is cleansed from the leprosy, and he shall pronounce him clean. And he shall let the live bird go free in the open field like the scapegoat. You have the scapegoat. There are two scapegoats. One dies, one goes free. And so in this baptism, this cleansing rite for the leper, you have one bird is killed and the blood poured out. The other, you have a hyssop stick and then you're dunking the live bird, it appears. And then you're sprinkling the blood on the cleansed leper. It's not the, the, the bird that's getting baptized. It's the person that's getting baptized. Think cleansing. And it's affected by sprinkling. I don't often do this, but because this is an interesting thing, and I think it's helpful to at least point out, and I'm not here arguing for infant baptism, please. I just, I'm looking at the purification, the consecration rite for these particular hotel Testament servants. So in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10, I'm just going to read this. I don't like to hopscotch around, but I'm going to do it here. Hebrews 9, verse 10. So sometimes you hear folks say, the word in Greek for baptism always means to, to immerse. Again, not to be polemical. It doesn't. Can it mean immerse? Yes, but it can mean pouring and it can mean sprinkling. And I'm going to give us a, from Hebrews 9, verse 10, it references three Old Testament baptismois. Look at that. Hebrews 9, uh, verse 10. Um, they talk about, this is the typological things in, the, in Hebrews and Leviticus. Since they relate only to food and drink in various, look at your Bible, in various what? Verse 10, since they relate only to food and drink in various what? Washings. The word there is baptismois. Now go over to verse 13. Hebrews 9, verse 13. If the blood of bulls, goats and bulls and ashes of heifer, and, and that's, that's, the, 
That is the Old Testament baptism voice that's in view. And how is it being administered? Through sprinkling. Now look at, and, and that is Numbers 19. That's a reference to Numbers 19. Look at verse 19 of chapter 9. Every commandment has been spoken by God, Moses to all the people according to the law. He took the blood of the calves and the goats and the water and the scarlet, wool and hyssop. And this is an Old Testament baptism voice. This is a reference to, Exod- to Exodus 24, the, the blood of the covenant that Jesus refers to in Leviticus, Luke 23. And he does what to the people? Baptismois. He sprinkles them. One more. Verse 21. And in the same way, this is in reference to Leviticus chapter 8. eight. In the same way, he sprinkles both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry with the blood. The primary import is not the mode. The primary import is that apart from grace, we are, are unworthy sinners and we cannot approach God. But God in his infinite grace is consecrating us, one with blood and one with water, and he does it by sprinkling. And then the, we could say that the, the, the sprinkling with water for the Levitical priest, it's fulfilled antitypically in Christ. In other words, when we see how Christ applies his blood to us that we should be saved, this is the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God and the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that's consecration or dedication, to obey Jesus and to be baptismoise, sprinkled with his blood. That's how the Bible says this typological stuff back here regarding the leper, regarding the Levite, is fulfilled in the antitype, which is Jesus. But does, do we find baptisms in the New Testament which are immersing, immersion? Certainly. Do you find baptisms in the New Testament which are by effusion or pouring? Certainly. How, is the, how does the Holy Spirit baptize the church? By sprinkling or immersion? No, by pouring. Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out. That's baptism. Purification, separation. Then you have the shaving of the hair, the washing of the clothes. We've mentioned this. Similar things are co- occurred with uh, the, the leper, they all teach the need that human beings, in order to be accepted and acceptable before God, we need cleansing. Um, there is something which occurs for the priests, which don't occur, which does not occur for um, the priestly helpers, and that is the consecration by oil. And the oil is consecrated for the priests, and I think probably there is a distinction uh, among a separation of labors, something like that. But the whole idea is that these ritualistic cleanings uh, are ultimately fulfilled in the spiritual cleaning done by God in Christ. The same thing is true of circumcision. Paul picks this up in Colossians chapter 2. He says, essentially, to New Testament people, you have received the Old Testament sign of spiritual circumcision. And then to the Old Testament people, he applies the New Testament sign, which he says they were baptized. In in First Corinthians chapter ten, which is why we believe what we believe. Um, okay, so um, now when we come to the dedication of these Levitical helpers being separated for some work of service in the sanctuary, if you have a study Bible, some of your study Bibles may say, "Well, the counterpart for these Levitical helpers in the New Testament would be the deacon." 
we do believe in the continuity of Scripture, that there's one covenant type and anti-type, but there are differences from the old to the new, certainly. the types and the shadows. There, there are differences. I myself don't see the Levitical helpers kind of one for one in the, in the deacons. The deacons have a different function because Christ himself fulfills the temple, the tabernacle, the furniture, the feasts, the sacrifices. So we no longer have that system anymore because that way of expressing the gospel is done. We, the, the fullness of time has come. We have Christ in the substance. So I myself, if your study Bible says it, I don't see the one-to-one, except if you were to say that they stand as um, pictures or symbols of servants of the Lord because they certainly are servants of the Lord. And a deacon... Is it just a, the, when we, our English word deacon is a transliteration of the Greek word diakonos, which just means servant? There are two words in Greek that mean servant. One means servant, servant, diakonos, and the other can mean servant or slave, doulos. And we are called both doulos, slave. The Apostle Paul opened up almost all his epistles and he said, I'm a slave of Christ, a slave of God in Christ. And the, and the, or, or, or Jesus is referred to as a deacon as a servant of the Lord. So I guess in that case, you would see that the servants of the Lord need to be uh, consecrated, which is certainly true in um, Christ. But I don't see the one-to-one. Then you have the presentation of these fellows, all in preparation to do the work in the sanctuary. And regarding the preparation of these particular men, if you were with us in the very beginning when we started this book, which I hope it's edifying and fruitful. It's enjoyable for me to study. It, it, it's a challenge, I will tell you. But we've met with these fellows back in Numbers, uh, chapter 1. And what you have in the earlier chapters is you have God calling out or separating the Levites from all of the other tribes. And you have God in the opening chapters of the book of Numbers. You remember the military census? God would say from 11 tribes for a certain age bracket, I want you to call men out and separate them unto me for military service. We need a warrior. uh, We need a militia, an army of the Lord. And it's for a reason. They're going to fight their way through the wilderness for 40 years. And for the other reason is when they get into the promised land, you you need a military to, to drive out the Canaanites. So God said all of the other 11 tribes from every tribe of men, of military age men, they're going to fight. But he consecrates and separates out one tribe. He says they're not going to fight these kind of battles. I'm going to have them separated unto me by my direction to serve me in this particular way. So these are the fellows that were called out for service in chapter 1, the later part of chapter 1. And now we find them being put into service. But I want us to get the idea of by God's doing. In the New Testament epoch, we don't have this, we don't have a priestly caste, but we did hear. In a servant helper caste, we did hear. This is by God's doing. If you were, if you were not a Levite, halfway towards the end of our passage, if you were a non-Levite, but an Israelite, and you went in and you said, you know what, I think I'd like to poke around the sanctuary today. I'd like to go and just see the sanctuary. How long would you live? Not very long. Because only the Levites and only the Aaronical priests were allowed to enter in and touch any of those things. Who was the king? My wife will tell me later. I think he went in and tried to do some sacrifices and his hand withered up, I think. 
and got leprous. And, they, and the priest grabbed him and rushed him out of there. A non-Levite, non-ironical priest touching the holy things. But the idea is God says to these men, you're going to serve me in this way. And he says to this other class of men, by his mind, you will serve me in this way. It's an expression of the sovereignty of God. I suppose um, the Puritans and Protestants in general had a theology of vocation, which I think is helpful to to deal with, to, to recapture, that we are created to work. If you can't work, our brother mentioned it this morning. It's like, don't if you don't work, you don't eat. If you can't work because you're broken, like broken, broken, you can't apply that passage to that. The, the idea is what the Puritans would say, you're a sturdy beggar. <laughs> you can work, but you won't work. And then maybe you shouldn't work, so your hunger will make you work. But the, it would be helpful to recapture the idea of vocation. God is an active God, and he's created men to imitate him. And we're created in his image. We're created to work. And he's the one that dispenses gifts and calling, that's what we're being taught. The other thing that we're taught about these men is what Paul tells Timothy, even principally. Verse 15, you shall cleanse these Levites, present them as a wave offering. And then the text says, for they are wholly given to me from among the sons of Israel. If I were to make application to this to the greater part of the Christian church, and then specifically to the ministry of the word and sacrament, we are to be wholly dedicated to the Lord. This is what Paul says, do everything you do is unto the Lord. We, we, the, the, I, I, what did Tony say? Tony mentioned the Heidelberg Catechism. Was it tonight or this morning? I can't remember. It's been a long day. Heidelberg Catechism, which is the Dutch end of things. Um, question one, what's your only hope in life and death? My only hope in life and death is that I'm not my own. I don't belong to myself. I've been purchased with the precious, precious blood of my Savior. Not a hair from my head falls from the ground. Everything is subservient to my salvation, the glory of God. Everything. That's this. Every Christian is to be wholly devoted to the Lord because he has purchased all of us, body and soul. And so whatever we do vocationally in our service to the Lord, whatever we do, we belong to him and we exist to give his glory. So there's no, there's, there's no, there's no such thing as being a temporary servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're a servant when you're at the house. You're a servant when you're on your, of Christ when you're on your job. You're a servant of Christ in your marriage. You're a servant of Christ when you come into the church. We're a servant of Christ when we vote. We, we are wholly his. This is why the Apostle Paul tells Timothy as a preacher of the word. Remember the division of labor that's going on here. I am not called to be a bricklayer. I've driven a truck. I've worked in factories. I had a carpet cleaning company. I've done lots of different jobs, lots of menial jobs. And the first job that was given to our first parents was not a white-collar job. It's what we typically call a blue-collar job. John Murray has a good essay in his book on Christian ethics on almost the divinity of physical labor. Being a farmer is really interesting on the notion that we are created to work, not just intellectually, which is real work, but the business of working with your hands, Adam and Eve, uh, gardeners, that kind of a thing. But you have the idea of being separated for a particular ministry. Paul tells Timothy to be devoted to the ministry of the word primarily and secondarily sacrament. Give yourself. Is this speaking against being a tent keeper, a a tent maker? Of course not. There was a time many years ago, boy, the church was, we took a hit that year. And I told my wife, well, it's a good thing I know how to drive Uber or whatever I was going to do. And I like like, uh, beans. I'll, I'll be a tent maker. 
I'm not leaving the church until they fire me or I die or Jesus comes back. I'll be a tent maker. So this is not speaking against being a tent maker, but the notion is to be wholly devoted to the work. That's where Paul tells Timothy, don't become entangled in the everyday affairs of everyday stuff. I went to see family the other day down in Tampa, and of course everyone talks politics because politics is exciting for everybody. And I was trying to be careful because I've failed in this area before in my family. And I'm a public person. I'm always a minister. I'm always on duty, always as a minister. And I've actually got caught up in cultural political discussions and got people mad at me, and I never talked to them about Jesus. And I remember thinking, oh, now for someone else, I don't know for someone else, but I do know for me as a Christian, boy, I messed that opportunity up to share Christ with them, my calling, my calling, when I just got mad and said, your guy is stupid and my guy is not stupid. And then you walked away angry with me and my mother said, I wish you wouldn't have done that. And I said, Ma, so do I. Because for the minister, and I'm not saying we can't talk politics, you can talk politics, but to be devoted as the minister to the ministry of the word especially. especially. That's this whole idea that this is what these fellows are doing. You remember when the people stopped supporting the Levites, and I promise this isn't a tithe sermon. Remember when they stopped supporting the Levites? What did the Levites do? They went back and worked the fields. And God rebuked them for it. Why did the Levites go back and work the fields? They have to eat. But God said to Israel, no, you were supposed to support them so they don't have to work the fields because I have other work for them to do. Does that make sense? So we, as these things just principally teaching that God has saved us, God has consecrated us, cleansed us to serve him. He's the one that sovereignly distributes gifts and calling. And then in whatever calling we are in, whatever calling, not everyone is to be a minister. Not everyone is to be an evangelist. I know there's a minister. He's a Reformed Baptist. He's a great guy, I suppose. I'm not entirely keen on some of his theology. He says, like, everybody should be a missionary. Like, every one of your kids, he's going to send you. Everybody should be a missionary. Like, everybody. This doesn't even make sense to me. Ephesians chapter 4, there are some ministers or some pastors, some elders, some teachers of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are various members. But no, no, no. There are some Christians who say, everybody. That's not true. That's not true. So whatever God has gifted you for, you are to be wholly devoting that to the Lord. Then you have um, the people are actually put into service, but they're put into service by this further ritualistic ceremony. And the thing that's interesting is they have to offer sacrifices for their sins, again, to show that they're, 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 they're typological. They're not the, the antitype, the true. Jesus didn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself, but even the priests and the priestly sac- helpers had to offer sacrifices for themselves because they're sinners. Ordination doesn't... I, I was watching on the Lord's Day, I try to do godly things. And so I was interested in what's called the Great Schism or the Papal Schism. And it wasn't the schism between the East and the West, between the Greek Orthodox, the Byzantine Church and the, and the Western Church. That is called the Great Schism. But there's another schism when the, when the papacy, they actually had two or three popes, one in Avignon, um, oh, one in Rome, and there was another one. Three popes consecutively. So, so I, I was... Um, I was watching these particular things on these particular um, popes in the, the, um, 
the division among them, I'm, I just lost my train of, my th my train of thought. Um, but back to what we're talking about. These particular uh, priests, they, oh, I remember what I talked these fellows, these priestly helpers and the priest needing a sacrifice, as you're watching the, the schism and, and they're talking about the popes, they would say things essentially that they're a pack of scallywags. And you're thinking, and that same is true of Protestants, there's not a holy one in the midst. And it teaches any ordination doesn't make you holy. Their ordination doesn't make them holy. It's typological. The only thing that makes any man holy, priest or non-priest, or preacher or non-preacher, is the blood of the Lamb. That's what this is being taught. But the other thing that's interesting about these fellows is they themselves are being spoken of in sacrificial language. Not only do they need sacrifice, they're taken as a representative sacrifice. They do a wave offering. Now, I will say this. This is kind of silly. It, I, it would never happen in a Reformed church, I don't think. We just have our own form of weirdness. But there are churches that do wave offerings and they take money and wave it to the Lord. It, it's so silly. They'll go to a passage, see, see wave offering. <laughs> Look at the 50. No, no, no. The idea of a wave offering is it's just that you're, you're lifting something up to the God that is up. But the Levites themselves are considered as an offering. This is that representative principle. They stand in place of the firstborn. Remember back in Exodus 12 and 13, the, the angel of death takes the firstborn of the, the Egyptians and spares the firstborn of the Israelites. But the Israelites actually, they're not spared completely. They themselves don't die. Remember, God took an animal for a time, but then ultimately says, the Levites will take the place. They're holy mine. They are my, they are my sacrificial offering to, to denote that I've, I've passed over all of my people with my wrath and visited with my mercy. And the last thing I want to talk about, just as the whole, we look at the consecration of servants to serve the Lord, is the retirement age. You have in our passage, uh, what does it say? Um, earlier in chapter, uh, boy, what was it? Chapter four. Okay. Here we have the age range for the Levitical priests and the Aaronical priests, uh, Levitical priestly helpers and the Aaronical priests, given here 25 to, uh, uh, what, 50. And then in chapter 4, the age limit is 30 to 50. And so there is a website. It's kind of uh, contradictionsinthebible.com. It's this smart Alec person. <laughs> he finds every place that he thinks is a contradiction, and he says, aha, these foolish Christians believing this book that I could punch refrigerator-sized holes through. Well, if you don't love the God of the Bible or the author of the Bible, I mean, if we are biased against a person, can we find things wrong with that person? Yeah, because we're looking for them. So I don't recommend going to his site, but he has a whole site. And he, he, he points this. Go to any good commentary. Matthew Henry, uh, Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin, any good commentary. The, the more understandable idea is there's some kind of five-year training on the job process of you are a Levite and before you take full responsibility, you have five years of, uh, of apprenticeship or something like that. That makes up the 25 to the 30. But then you have an upper age limit. And if you know your Bible later, 
the temporary tabernacle, excuse me, is going to go away and be replaced by a temporary uh, a temple. The temple is still temporary. I'm not dispensational, and that's another story. But the temple is, even for the dispensationalists, we're both ultimately of the same view. The temple will ultimately go away and will be in the eternal estate. It's just the middler time that we differ with. But the temporary tabernacle gives way to the temporary temple. That's when the people of God enter the promised land, the temporary tabernacle, the tent goes away, and then Solomon builds the first temple. God the Holy Spirit inspires David to keep the lower age range of service of Levitical and Aaronical priests, and then there's no upper age limit. Again, this is where the naysayer says, well, there you go. There's no upper age limit there. There is the contradiction. Well, again, since we've been subdued by the Holy Spirit to God, we studied the scripture. What is a legitimate reason why you need guys 25 or 30 to 50 here in the book of Numbers, and you won't need them uh, to be that young in, uh, when, with the coming of the temple. What's one reason? What do these men do for 40 years? They carry stuff. They carry stuff. You need guys in the prime of their life all day long. These Levitical helpers are butchering animals. They're killing animals. I've never slaughtered an animal, ever. I watched my father, well, I've killed lots of fish and sharks and but I've never, not a, not a, not a non, not something that didn't come out of the ocean. I've killed plenty of things in the ocean. I've never slaughtered an animal. I, if you slaughtered a cow, is it hard work? I, it's probably hard work. These guys slaughtered animals all day long. And when God says, now here's the game plan, I want you to pack all this stuff up and do what with it? you got to carry it. It's, in this particular time in redemptive history, they're on a 40-year hike carrying all of this gear. And then they're killing animals all day long. You need men in the prime of their life. And then you, when you come into the, t- the temple, what are they not doing anymore? They're not packing stuff up and they're not carrying it. That's why there's no upper age limit. It, it, it's understandable to us. And even in this passage, it allows after their retirement age, they're still able to help their brothers it doesn't say with various obligations, but they're not in charge of their full duties anymore. That there's a, there's a time that their active service uh, will be over. When will the time, I'm going to just say this, when will our active service as Christian servants of the Lord be over? When will we cease actively serving the Lord? When we breathe our last and we go home. Now, you might not be able to serve the Lord the same way that you could serve him when you were 20 to 50. You're going to serve him differently when you're 60 or you're 70 or you're 80. You think, well, I'm 80. What can I do? I don't have the body of a 20-year-old. What can I do? You can pray. Or you can talk to the 20-year-old and tell him what to do because you know more than the 20-year-old. But you can pray. But there's no retirement age for the believer until we go home and then it will be eternal worship. Those thoughts from uh, chapter uh, 8 of the book of Numbers. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.